What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Melissa Lee, and this is Fast Money. Tonight's trader lineup, Guy Dami, Tim Seymour, Dan Nathan, and Bono and Ice. And tonight on Fast, charged up. Tesla about to kick off its first ever battery day. Our team is plugged in and ready to break down all the big headlines. Plus, we are following the after hours action in shares of Nike. That stock soaring as the company's earnings call gets underway. And later, Carvana putting the pedal to the metal. We'll tell you about the big call that sent this stock into overdrive today. But we start off with a Tuesday turnaround. Stocks pushing higher with tech once again taking the lead. The Nasdaq getting 1.7%. But there could be a big thread bubbling just underneath the surface of this market. We're calling it a game of he said, she said, President Trump and Chinese President Xi Jinping both dialing up the rhetoric today at the U.N. General Assembly. Let's get straight to Kayla Tausche, who's got the details. Kayla. Melissa, President Trump has often used his annual speeches at the U.N. General Assembly to challenge his adversaries, whether it's the nuclear regimes in Iran and North Korea or for the second year running China, which he took direct aim at in his speech this year that was pre-recorded despite consummating a trade deal with China in January. At this year's virtual diplomatic gathering, the speeches were pre-recorded. They were shorter than usual, but President Trump held no punches against China, which he accused of letting its citizens leave the country and infect others and accused it of withholding information about the virus. The Chinese government and the World Health Organization, which is virtually controlled by China, falsely declared that there was no evidence of human-to-human -human transmission. Later, they falsely said people without symptoms would not spread the disease. The United Nations must hold China accountable for their actions. Following shortly after Trump and the in the program was President Xi Jinping, who both at the U.N. and Davos has long extolled the virtues of globalization, and he said that is to blame. COVID-19 reminds us that we're living in an interconnected global village with a common stake. All countries are closely connected, and we share a common future. No country can gain from others' difficulties or maintain stability by taking advantage of others' troubles. The two countries also went toe-to-toe -to, -toe to the extent that you can in pre-recorded barbs on climate. Uh, President Xi extolled China's leadership position in the Paris Agreement after the U.S. had withdrawn. President Trump said even without being in that agreement, it has the best carbon emissions record of any of the countries in that agreement. But Melissa, notably missing, which we always get at the UNGA, are the cuts shots of the audience members. So you understand a little bit more about how the speeches are being received. Because we didn't get that this year, it's hard to know exactly how some of those remarks landed. Uh, but certainly, as I mentioned before, no punches were held. All right. Kayla, thank you. Kayla Tausche. And of course, the context to all of this is what has gone on with TikTok, what has gone on with WeChat, what has gone on with Huawei. Um, Tim Seymour, I'll go to you. In earlier years of the show, you're known as the ambassador for good reason. What do you, <laughs> what do you make of U.S.-China right now and how it could impact the markets? 
Well, the, the irony is that I think U.S. tech companies have been gaining in market cap and performance on the basis of a, of a fear uh, of really global slowdown that could be China. Remember the early days of the trade wars, which started in the first quarter of 2018, we actually saw big cap tech be at times most at risk, uh, at times when Apple has talked about their, their exposure to China and, and where they were actually seeing a big pullback in EM. This was something that actually pushed the markets around. It, you know, the, I think the market's approach to actually defensive and how some of these mega cap names actually trade with their balance sheet and their growth and secular trends that, uh, frankly, uh, aren't necessarily uh, you know, queued into China on their every move. Having said all that, we, we point out on this show all the time uh, that the, the global dynamics here are very, very important, whether it's supply chain uh, and other things that have been, uh, I think, disrupted. So uh, it's hard to say that this is meaningless. Um, having said all that, uh, I think the liquidity factors for the market right now are, are a lot more important. And I think people also look at the politics mm -hmm. of this. Uh, beating on China is a bipartisan issue right now going into an election season. Um, China certainly has to push back based upon Huawei. Uh, and, uh, you know, the tic-tac dynamics, if the shoe was on the other foot, can you imagine how this would be perceived here? Um, so, look, uh, I, I think we're, we're focused on the factors that are probably more important to the market right now, which are COVID-19 and which are Fed liquidity. Um, but China will be very important to the global growth story still. Guy, for a long time, you said that, that these tensions uh, should be paid attention to a bit more. Why do you think the markets are so inured to, to what is going on here? Yeah, I've said it, but clearly I've been incorrect because the market hasn't cared. I think Tim hit the nail on the head in terms of why the market has not been concerned whatsoever. It's because they, the market seems to think, correctly or otherwise, that somehow there's this Fed backstop and liquidity overrides everything, which, you know, probably is true. It's probably that simple. But, you know, the rhetoric is continuing to be ratcheted up. And, you know, you get a point where it's the straw that broke the camel's back. Well, the rhetoric today out of the U.N. General Assembly, virtual or not, is just one more escalation, in my opinion. And at a certain point, I think the market should care. Clearly, though, and I have to be uh, adamant about that, you know, I thought it would care months ago, and that hasn't been the case, Melissa. Yeah, I mean, we saw the markets basically melt up, um, go higher since Mnuchin and Powell uh, left their seats on, on Capitol Hill. Bonwin, um, you know, there's a, a veritable potpourri of reasons to be skeptical of, of the markets. And yet there there keeps being uh, dip buyers out there. Why do you think that is? And, and would you be one as well? Well, it's really a it's really a matter of, I mean, the best of the worst. I mean, we've talked about the pandemic, COVID-19, how it's having the global effect. We've talked about the un unemployment rate. We've talked about some of the push and pull between manufacturing data, uh, and we talked about the differences between large and small businesses. So really you have all of these dynamics kind of coming into play. And ultimately what people are doing is, Guy just said, they're pointing to the Fed, they're pointing to the fiscal stimulus that we've had, they're pointing to ease of debt, capital market access, and saying, okay, these are the things that are going to continue to drive us higher. I personally think the risk-reward is to the downside. That doesn't mean that I'm necessarily a market seller. It's just at some point you do have to start, start taking chips on the chips off of the table. And I've said it ad nauseum, whether it's putting in stops, buying puts, whatever, the VIX is telling you something. I think that you do buy dips. However, given that you've seen Apple move like 10% intraday, what, is, what has been a historical pullback, I think you need to double or perhaps triple that, taking into, uh, take into account the increased volatility that we're seeing on both the down and the upside. Dan? Yeah, it's funny. I, I mean, just kind of keying off what Bonoan just said there, the volatility in some of these big market leaders, you know, 
uh, Apple melted up in the month of August. It went up, you know, it went from 95 to 138 dollars, and what felt like a straight line, and then it went from 138 on September 2nd. I think the low yesterday was maybe 102 or 103. It gave you an opportunity to get back in. It basically filled in the entire gap from earnings and the in the move afterwards you know i'll just say this i think we're probably in a market given all the headwinds going back to the issues with china that the market doesn't care they might care at a certain point um, they might care about how the election's moving one way or another they might care that um, there's no more fiscal stimulus at least until after the election who knows what about the debt ceiling there's a lot of stuff out there and maybe that's priced in after the sell-off that we've had but it does feel like we're probably going to see sellers on rallies. The, the downtrend, even in the S&P 500, is very sharp. So we might be in a situation where it's one step forward, two steps back because of the uncertainty, but also because how far we've come in such a short period of time. So again, I'm not saying sell, 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 but it really feels like the tide has changed a little bit, especially the forces that were pushing us higher over the, the spring and the summer are really not in place right now. All right. For more on how uh, U.S.-China tensions could hit the market, let's bring in DeWardrick McNeil, founder of Longview Global. He's a former senior China policy analyst for the Department of Defense and a CNBC contributor. DeWardrick, great to have you with us. Welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me, Melissa. Uh, do you think that uh, U.S.-China tensions are any worse than they were six months ago? It's a good question. Look, I, I don't think that there's been any indication that the long-term trend for strategic competition has changed. In fact, I think in some ways they've only doubled down this approach. There has been some notable tactical differences from China. Largely, the Chinese have passed some laws that make their market appear more open uh, to foreign investors. Uh, the Chinese have changed their tune diplomatically uh, with respect to Europe and Latin America, ASEAN, and have really gone on a diplomatic charm offensive. But these are largely just to increase its resiliency to the long-term competition uh, with the U.S. There's been no signal that the Chinese isn't prepared to or willing uh, to compete long-term. Uh, they're frankly concerned about a potential Biden election uh, that might make uh, other countries uh, more open to U.S. overtures to uh, gang up against China or try and force China economically and politically to change some of its behavior. But to answer your question, I don't see this relationship getting any better over the long term. Just some slight tweaks tactically here in the near term. So you think Beijing would prefer uh, a Trump administration mainly because they think Biden would be tougher effectively when it comes to trade and other issues? Unclear, but mm -hmm. we certainly know that the Chinese diplomatic offensive, you know, look, we had three uh, trips to Europe here over the last uh, two months, uh, culminating with Xi Jinping's uh, mm -hmm. virtual meeting uh, with Angela Merkel. So they are concerned about uh, Biden uh, really changing the America first approach, which China has benefited greatly from as we've stepped away from our strategic and traditional allies. So, yes, I do think they are concerned about Biden, but they also would like to see a calmer, more predictable relationship. And they think Biden would provide that Trump is, in their minds, hard to predict and hard to plan against. So Beijing is unsure what they would like. And so all of these steps are really about securing Beijing's ability to compete long term with a Trump or a potential Biden administration. 
Thanks so much for your uh, insightful commentary. I had a quick question. So we've been speaking quite a bit about the effect that increased you know, U.S. tensions might have on the likes of Apple, et cetera. Would you mind giving me an idea of a few other companies that you think might have uh, headline risk here on this front? Yeah, it's a good question. Look, I think that there, there are several areas that I would be concerned about if I was in, say, the emerging or new technology space. This is a place where both countries have put in place export control laws, and so they are, in effect, decoupling through regulation and law. So if you're in semiconductors, for example, I would be uh, extremely uh, concerned about that. If you have supply chains that reach into Xinjiang, anywhere along that supply chain, I would be concerned about that. We've seen cotton and tomatoes. Uh, so you know, on the agricultural side, there are some uh, Xinjiang. So these are high-risk areas if you're in these sectors or in this particular location, and, and I would be concerned about that. I'd rather go there than specific companies, but there are some real sectors here that are at risk. All right. DeWardrick, thank you. DeWardrick McNeil, we appreciate it. Uh, Tim Seymour, he mentioned semiconductors. We all know that that is uh, a risk, the China-U.S. relations, and yet it, it, that hasn't phased the sector, at least recently. No, in fact, if you look at semis, uh, they're, they're just off of all-time highs. If you mm -hmm. look at essentially the semi manufacturer of the world, uh, Taiwan Semi, it, it's actually really outperformed even the group. So um, I think DeWardrick is getting at kind of a, a rational kind of practical approach that China has played here. And, and, and again, I, I think, you know, if anyone should be at risk here, it's Apple. Uh, and, and, you know, the question is to be asked is at what point are, is really Apple going to be a target when you consider uh, the attacks on Chinese companies that, again, maybe rightfully have come uh, from, from over here. But there's no question that, that Tencent uh, is one of the most strategically important Chinese companies in the world. And that's the one um, that I would be more fearful of pushing around, uh, possibly than Huawei. Yeah. Dan? Yeah, I, listen, we've said it a thousand times on this show. The Trump admission, uh, administration is correct to push back on this. But I'm not certain that forced technology transfer, you know, to combat forced technology transfer, which is really what they're trying to do with the, the ByteDance um, TikTok thing, is the way to do it. When you think about it, our companies, our major innovative companies, Facebook, Amazon, um, the list goes on and on. Google, they do not have access to China. That is a huge, huge market here. And all those companies are facing regulatory risk here in the U.S. So something really does need to be done here because our companies are desperate to get in there and the rules need to be fair. And I actually do think they should be more worried about a Biden administration than they are about a Trump administration over the next four years. The point that he makes about pulling out of TPP and having this weird unilateral relationship with them is really been beneficial to China as they expand in their Belt and Road process um, with the long game here. And we're just in chaos. So I think they prefer the chaos right here. As a country, we need to protect our companies, protect our technology, and really have a much more uh, multilateral approach um, you know, to this whole process. It just can't be one-off and it can't be chaos like we have right now. All right. Well, we've got an earnings alert here that we want to get to. On Nike, shares are soaring as the company's call kicks off. Let's get to Sarah Eisen with the latest. Hey, Sarah. Hi, Melissa. This is a blowout quarter. John Donahoe, the company's CEO, just giving his opening remarks on the conference call right now with analysts, talking about 
how it was really innovation that drove the growth and the better than expected performance in Nike, talking up some product hits, which is always how Nike opens its conference call. For instance, they launched a new yoga collection that is driving what he says is incredible growth and that they've gained share during the pandemic in key markets like the U.S. in Nike and Jordan. Just want to review some of the highlights of this quarter. By the way, the big news on the conference call usually comes when the CFO takes over in a few minutes and announces guidance if they are providing that. So for the quarter, the earnings number, the EPS, came in almost double what analysts were expecting. As far as sales, they were also better than expected, but show that Nike is not immune from the pandemic and the consumer slowdown that we've seen globally, still down 1% overall. The biggest highlight as far as the sales numbers was digital, continues to soar up 82% for Nike Digital. And some context around that number last quarter, that number was a little bit lower, around 80%. That was during the pandemic when things were shut down. So the momentum there has continued. And for Nike, this has grown to be about a third of the overall business. It was a goal that they set for 2023, happened more than two years before that. As far as what else stood out in terms of better numbers, China numbers back to growth, rising 6% as that country has come back online. North America sales numbers were down 2%, but analysts were expecting down double digits. I saw some estimates for down 20 to 22% there. As far as the impact here, traffic is down, according to Nike in the release, because of safety-related measures, and they can't open the stores at the normal capacity. But they did say that's being partially upset by higher conversion, which is just retail speak for fewer visits to the stores, but people are paying more money. They have higher purchasing intent when they come into the stores. It really is that resonance with the strong brand and their consumer connection, along with the innovations that kept Nike outperforming. Melissa, hopes were high going into this Mm -hmm. report. It was up about 15% for the year. It's now up what, more than 9% trading at new record highs as the conference call goes on. Sarah, thank you. Sarah Eisen with a lowdown on Nike. Hopes were high going in, but not high enough, apparently, Guy. It's amazing how off the analyst community was when it comes to Nike, whether it be on the EPS side or the the forecast for the decline in North American sales, which, you know, they were expecting a 10 times uh, bigger decline than what they actually posted. Yeah, and I'm not looking to kill analysts here. We, we obviously we saw a little bit of that yesterday. But what I will say is, you know, those same analysts missed it on the downside a couple of quarters ago. I mean, it's been a hard one to gauge. With that said, you know, I think across this desk, we've been very bullish in Nike. We've said for a while that this is a stock that seems to be impervious to the broader market and to what's going on in China. And if you look at the numbers that Sarah just broke down, I'll add a couple more. Gross margins beat. SG&A was much better. And if you look at their inventory build, I think it was up about 15 percent, but that's offset by their sales growth. So the only thing you can say negative about Nike at these levels is valuation. And, but that's what you've been able to say for the last couple of years. And, and literally ever since that little bit of a hiccup in terms of the stock price, I'm emphasizing that in terms of the stock price around the Colin Kaepernick news a couple of years ago, this stock has been a monster, and I think you stay long against the previous high, which I think was 120 and change. This has been one bright spot in retail for sure. They're selling the exact right things at the exact right time with the with a strong brand. Um, also, Lululemon, we should note, announced that it was going to resume its share buybacks, which is also a sign of confidence in its outlook. Um, Bono, and what do you what do you make of the sector? I mean, overall retail, I still think it struggles. I mean, I again, I, I'm not past the whole COVID-19 thing, and I just don't think that 
going into stores and consuming in historical fashion is coming back in the ways that we know it. Now, what really sticks out to me about this earnings call is the digital uh, platform, the commitment to that and the pull forward of revenue off of that. I think that's what you're seeing in Walmart, Target, Home Depot, all of these retailers that have done well. You've seen a commitment to that online business. And I think they've been able to show their capability in monetizing just that. Uh, Tim, quick comment as a shareholder. Well, look, you know, 35 times 2022 might get a lot cheaper after you see the upgrades on the street. In other words, you know, the street was around four bucks a share, puts you at $140 stock, and I bet there's going to be upgrades. So uh, that SGNA number may not be sustainable. Margins, I think, are innovation. Is ser- that's the emphasis here uh, in this digital. I, you know, I, I think um, I also just think this is not a quick comment. So I'll just quickly say I think the spending power of the consumer is going higher as they get out of the urban centers. I think there's more money to spend. I think a lot of people are living cheaper. All right. We've got more earnings on deck. Up next, shares of KB Home on the move in the after hours. The company's call is now underway. We'll tell you what the home building giant is saying about the red hot housing market. But first, the one chart flashing a major buy signal for tech. We're going off the charts with Chris Verone when Fast Money returns. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Welcome back to Fast Money. Stocks recovering a bit after yesterday's sell-off. The Nasdaq leading the charge, climbing nearly 2%. Our next guest says there may be big bullish signs flashing for the tech trade. Let's go off the charts with Chris Verone of Strategus. Chris, what are you looking at? Hey, Melissa. Well, we'll start uh, with a couple charts we brought along. I want to start with the S&P and just kind of put this in a little bit of context. Uh, S&P down 10% from the highs. That's a pretty good drawdown. But what we've seen over the last several days is the sign that this correction is actually starting to run its course. Uh, Yesterday, we had about 55% of the S&P trade to a one-month low. Historically, particularly when you're in an uptrend, that's a pretty good signal you're getting close to some capitulative-type low. I think that puts us likely within a couple percent of what will be a good tradable low uh, in this drawdown phase. And you know, when you look at this data historically and you look at the back test, when you get this spike in 20-day lows, believe it or not, your forward returns, particularly over the next three and six months, tend to be very, very good, well above what the historical numbers look like. So we have this spike in 20-day lows. It's reflective of some indiscriminate selling uh, under the surface. We think that sets us up uh, for some type of a tradable low uh, over coming weeks. If we narrow down just on tech and just on growth, I think the most important chart that investors should focus on is just how quickly sentiment towards the queues has really flipped. You've had $4 billion of outflows from the queues uh, over the last several weeks. So you've seen liquidation in the ETF flows. I think somewhere in that 10,300 to 10,500 range on the NASDAQ 100 is going to prove to be good support. And I want to give you two names within tech, within growth, uh, to take advantage here. And I think one, Roku, uh, R-O-K-U, big base, it has spent the better part of the last two years in a range that has just started to break out here. It got above that key 175 level. We think 250 is the target here long term. And then if you look at Salesforce, ticker CRM, we know how strong that momentum-driven breakout was 
in August. The stock rallied hard on that, but it was on really big volume. And this correction since has been very benign, no real damage done uh, under the surface. We think both those names are good ways to play this trade. Chris, good to see you. Thank you. Chris nice Verone, a strategist. Guy, which chart do you like? <laughs> Well, I mean, Chris threw out a little Louise Yamada there, as you know, the Mel, because I'm in your head. Big and you base. Were, Exactly. The bigger the base, the, the higher, higher in, in outer space or some damn thing. Yeah. I, yeah. Have, I have no idea. But he is. threw it out there. And I know Lu- Louise watches the show, but Roku. And, if, you know, I know Dan, you know, likes to OK boomer me, and he has fricasseed me on this one a number of times. But you had really encouraging news yesterday between our parent company, NBC, Comcast, and uh, Peacock signing a deal with, Roku, the stock exploded to the upside. I think it closed at 197 today. Um, that's the one I think they report in early November. It sounds preposterous, but you stay with this thing into earnings in early November. Dan, I'll give you uh, the chance to OK Boomer Guy if you, if you want to take it. Oh, listen, you can throw Roku on the scrap heap of just tech media hardware that this is going to go away, you know, someday very soon. But the thing is, making new all-time highs has great momentum. It's breaking out. I've definitely been a skeptic of this as far as the technology. I will just tell you that I think his setup in the Salesforce.com makes sense. If you are bullish here, if you thought that that drawdown over the last couple of weeks was enough, then you go back to names like Salesforce that had great results, big gaps, play it back up to that prior high. Same thing with Microsoft got back to 200, play it back to 230. Um, You know, there's plenty of trading opportunities and buy them at those prior breakout levels that are support and then trade against that support. Bonoan, what's your favorite chart there that Chris went through? Um, I mean, I I will say Roku. Um, I like CRM. I know it it a bit better. Roku clearly up 20% or 18% yesterday on the back of the news. So definitely bullish there. What I will say is that I have a hard time thinking that there's a lot more to go on the upside until November. Like, so, so to Dan's point, if you're going to trade them, trade them. Make sure you have levels in mind and trade them. But in terms of retrenching, I, I don't think this is the right time. All right. We're just getting started here on Fast Money. Here's what's coming up next. Tesla's billing it is one of the most important days in the company's history. But will Battery Day deliver the goods? What we can expect from the event just about to get underway. And speaking of cars, shares of Carvana are hitting all-time highs. We'll tell you what's behind the move and whether you should expect that stock to drive even higher. We've got that and a lot more when Fast Money returns. Edward Jones, who knows that just like life, financial planning isn't only about long-term goals. It's about the moments big and small along the way. And when it comes to achieving everyday financial goals, Edward Jones works hard to connect you with someone you can trust professionally and personally. That's why they created their free financial advisor matching tool to help you find a financial advisor in your community. When you take the quiz and get your matches, don't expect just a list of resumes. You'll also see each financial advisor's story and personal interests. And when it's time to meet for the first time, they'll focus on your story, asking questions to understand where you're headed and why. Because Edward Jones knows that at the end of the day, behind every financial goal is a life goal. And that's what really matters. To learn more and find your financial advisor partner, take the quiz at match.edwardjones.com. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production. 
and they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand. Welcome back to Fast Money. Happening right now, Tesla is kicking off its first ever battery day. Let's get to Phil Lebeau with more on what we can expect. Phil. Hey, Melissa, it's going to start in a couple of minutes. They have just wrapped up the Tesla annual meeting. That went about an hour. Pretty much routine. Nothing unusual there. All of the board recommended uh, votes in terms of the five proposals that were out there. It all went that way. And in terms of this battery day, and as soon as it begins, really there are three things that the analysts are focused on in terms of what they're expecting to happen during this event. One, as they lay out the battery developments that are out there, Lower cell costs. How much lower? Will it go well below $100? And will they give a dollar amount? By what time? Two years, five years down the road, greater cell production capacity, not only from Tesla, but also working with their suppliers. And will they say that they are developing or have developed a million-mile battery? That would be a heck of a breakthrough if, in fact, that's what the announcement is. As you take a look at shares of Tesla, remember that the key thing that people are focused on here. It's all about costs. You will hear a lot of people talk about range and talk about some of the other interesting developments when it comes to battery production. But if they can maintain their lead in terms of battery costs, Melissa, that's what Wall Street and analysts and investors will be focused on. Again, the battery day presentation expected to begin in about, uh, oh, I'd say five minutes or so. And one other thing, Melissa, Mm -hmm. the people who are there, shareholders who want to raffle to be there because they want to have social distancing, Elon Musk is on a stage in Fremont, California. They are all in Teslas, and whenever he would say something, they would honk their horn. I'm sure with the air filtration system going as well. <laughs> Phil. Sure. Yeah, why not? Thank you, Phil. Phil LeBeau. We should note that uh, prior to Battery Day, Shareholder Day is happening. So let's get more on all of what has gone on so far this afternoon. Let's get to Gene Munster uh, of Loop Ventures. Gene, welcome. And, and he's also talking Hi, about 2020 targets. Yes, yeah, big deal. There's the near term around what Elon said just after the shareholder meeting. Then there's the long term. So we'll start with the near term. He reiterated their target of essentially 500,000 vehicles, up 30 to 40 percent from last year. This is a massive surprise uh, from my perspective, given all the headwinds that the company has had this year. From Elon's perspective, it's I'm doing exactly what I said I was going to do. I think what imagine what that number would have been if we haven't had the pandemic. And so I think that's been the biggest near term takeaway. But I also want to frame in the significance of today. I think it is an important day. I think today starts a slow page turn from Tesla being an auto tech company to an energy tech company. And I recognize that that may come across as tone deaf for uh, many investors, this idea of being an energy tech company. But that's really the substance about what we're going to hear about battery day is uh, batteries. The energy piece of this is critical to ramping production of EVs. They need to uh, increase their production by 28 times of batteries in the next decade to hit their targets. 28 massive increase. We're going to hear how they're going to do that. And when you increase battery production by that much, it creates a dynamic that is dangerous for traditional auto. Effectively, what you do when you're producing at that scale, you push costs down, and Tesla will use that to their advantage, lowering the price of vehicles. 
And I think investors are going to leave today with a long-term sense that uh, auto, if they thought traditional auto was in, in a tight spot, I think they'll think it's an even tighter spot. I think that's an interesting um, notion, Gene, an energy or battery tech company. But how, how then do the metrics um, with which you measure Tesla, how, do, how does that change? Is it no longer vehicles per year or vehicles per quarter? And what does it become? And why is this any different from traditional automakers developing more fuel-efficient engines? That are, could they be considered energy tech companies? No, I, I think gasoline engines are are going to be a thing of the past. In the next decade, we expect the market share to be 40%. It's 3% of total cars sold. There is no long-term hope for gas. Uh, it is uh, it is going to, they're going to go away. I think in terms of how investors, to your important question, how investors should ultimately measure this, it's about revenue growth. And the importance about being an energy tech company is it opens up massive uh, addressable markets. For example, on the battery side alone, we think about traditional auto. If Tesla is able to have 25% global car share, now that is a huge number. Think about GM at 15%. That's the highest one. But they have 80% share of EVs in the U.S. Let's say they get to that 25%. That basically implies that they'll do about $650 billion in revenue. And if this is viewed as a uh, tech uh, energy tech company, uh, the stock will likely trade at a multiple of that revenue. Right now, it's about a $400 billion market cap. And so, and one other piece when we think about your question about what's the substance of this, what is, uh, it sounds nice, energy tech company, but what's the substance of it? It is, again, getting to these massive uh, 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 untapped markets. One is around transportation, others around renewable energies in terms of batteries in the home or at the grid scale. And then there's other technologies. And I think this is going to be the piece that will progressively emerge in the uh, months ahead. Tesla taking technology that they have mastered in building cars and applying that to new markets. For example, you talked or Phil talked about the filtration systems. They have a great opportunity to get into HVAC and really change how homes are heated and cooled. But these are examples of energy problems, ultimately, that Tesla can help solve. Gene, you know, obviously, Elon Musk, you know, he troughed, I guess, maybe it was that webinar or podcast he did when he was smoking weed. And, you know, that was probably the trough. But he really seems to have grown into the role of CEO. Am I making too much out of it? Because I thought the existential risk was that he would fail and he seems to be flourishing. Is that really the hidden upside for Tesla right here? I think it's a big part of it. I'm always cautious. I'm a pragmatic person. And when I see that behavior, I'm always uh, cautious that it can reemerge. And so I think from an investor perspective, they should assume that uh, Elon's going to be doing some things that are out of bounds, I'm sure, in the years ahead. The fact that they're starting their meeting, subtle things. I mean, uh, you think about like Apple starts to the second when they have a meeting. It is uh, the precision is is just quite remarkable uh, for Tesla to even get close to starting on time, which they did today, uh, is a step that Elon is growing up. Um, we have to give him credit where it is due. And I think at the end of the day is when you're talking about changing these markets, you really uh, want somebody who uh, has those first-order principles, and Elon is the person to lead the company. Gene, always great to get your take. Gene Munster of Thank Loop you. Ventures. Uh, the question is, is the stock viable here? Uh, Bonoan, what do you think? Is it viable? I mean, if you believe the story, yes, it is. Am I personally buying <laughs> it here? I mean, I'm, I'm not. Um, but I've missed a lot of the move, right? So clearly, I've been wrong. 
Um, but I'm not here to chase tops and advise other people to do that. With that said, if you definitely buy into the battery story, um, the, the length of the battery, the time of the battery, the cheapness of the battery, and, and what the new adjustable market will be for battery-operated um, utilities, then yes, I can definitely see the thing trending much higher. But I don't understand that well enough. I don't have my pulse on that. And for those reasons, I'm not buying right here. We've got a news alert on Palantir's IPO plans. Let's get to Josh Lipton for the details. Josh. So, Melissa, those plans are changing. Palantir now is going to commence trading on the NYSE on September 30th. So that's a change. Remember, uh, originally it was September 23rd, now the t- uh, t- then to the 29th. And now, uh, most recently here, we now know it's going to start trading on September 30th. Of course, a lot of interest in this company, co-founded by Peter Thiel back in 2003, now run by Alex Karp. Remember what this company does. It provides software that allows customers to integrate just uh, volumes of disparate data. So everything from images to spreadsheets into this central platform where it can be analyzed and interpreted securely. But again, the news here, Palantir will be commenced training on the NYSE on September 30th. Melissa, back to you. Josh, thank you. Josh Lipton with uh, Palantir News. Dan, what do you think? Yeah, I'll just throw this in with some of the action we saw last week. At one point, Snowflake was a $90 billion market cap. Unity Software made a massive run today after its IPO made a new high. That's over a $20 billion market cap. Palantir is certainly going to perform, um, or at least there's going to be a lot of demand. You know, a lot of PMs have to make, portfolio managers have to make room for all this new issuance. So I think that has something to do with probably some of the NASDAQ weakness that we've seen over the last couple of weeks. There's been a lot of issuance. These are high valuation names. Um, and it is a sort of buyer beware sort of situation. But Palantir is a company that you are going to want to own for the next 10 or 15 years. It's just whether or fact you want to buy it after their direct listing in two weeks or not. I just don't have the answer for we that. We haven't talked about the source of funds kind of argument, Tim, in, in quite some time. And here we are in this market. Yeah, and, and I think it's important. Uh, Chris Rohn did a great job talking about the outflows and the triple Qs. Uh, that was a record on Friday, three and a half billion. And but look, the, the Nasdaq that's moved five percent in under two sessions or Apple, uh, Amazon moved eight point eight percent in four hundred and fifty minutes over two days. I mean, you, of course, this Palantir IPO is going to go well. Uh, think about the money that people are throwing at software companies in the multiple. They are the top of the food chain of the top of the food chain. Um, there's nothing in the market right now that says this IPO won't do well, in my view. And I'm, I'm someone that still believes that, that tech can correct down lower, even though I, I think I'm really clear that the, the overall liquidity dynamics for the market are not going away anytime soon. All right. Coming up, the home sweet home trade, KV Home on the move after reporting an earnings beat. Will the hot housing trade keep up? We've got fresh commentary from the company's call when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. Take a look at shares at KB Home, touching after hours lows after reporting results. Let's get to Diana Olick, who's uh, fresh from the company's earnings call. Diana. Yeah, and Melissa, it was still a nice Q3 beat on both EPS and revenue for KB Home, which specializes in entry-level properties on the lower end of the price scale. New orders up 27% annually, and the California-based builders saw growth in all four geographic regions. KB reported raising prices in most communities, its average sale price close to $380,000. Now, on the conference call, CEO Jeff Metzger said they experienced a solid increase in their share of millennial buyers and their percentage of first-time buyers increased by 10% 
percentage points to 64 percent. He also said they're seeing buyers spend more to personalize their homes in the design studio. Now, he added that the fires in the West could cause delivery delays, and that might be what's weighing on the stock. He also said they expect $5 billion in revenue for 2021, up $200 million at the midpoint compared to a year ago. Now, new orders in the first three weeks of this month were up 32 percent annually, and the cancellation rate improved from 17 percent to 12 Also important to note that while they really put a hold on buying land in Q2 to preserve cash, quote, due to the uncertainty of the pandemic, they have resumed land acquisition and development to bolster the pipeline for the future. Melissa? Diana, thank you. Diana Olick on KB Homes. Um, Guy, do you you buy that argument in terms of uh, the fires delaying deliveries as as why the stock is lower? I mean, that's sort of, they will be delivered. It just may not be you know, in, in the time frame that they thought, but maybe in a quarter or so. No, I think I, I buy it in the fact that, you know, maybe the machines are interpreting that and that's why the stock is lower. What I'll say is today's high of $40.86 uh, smacked to the level we saw back in February of a, effectively the same price, $40.50. And we've talked about, you know, KB Holmes having trouble and being sort of the laggard of the big three, DHI and Lennar. Um, as, as Sean Connery said in The Hunt for Red October, we need to give this American a wide berth. And I'll say that about uh, KBH in terms of a potential for a double top. I'm, I'm really interested here. Like, you want to buy this breakout, but it's struggling at 41. I think the way to play it is with Lennar and DHI that continue to show out performance. Do you have a Hunt for Red October quote, Tim? <laughs> because we were going back and forth on Yogi Berra last night. <laughs> I can't, but that was the best Irish-Lithuanian accent in history uh, by Sean Connery. So uh, I agree. I'd love to know how Guy would customize his house, by the way. We heard people were, you know, what he would do. Uh, An to arts the jungle and crafts room, so room I'm sure, things like that. Yep. Yep. <laughs> do you have a comment on the stock? <laughs> <laughs> oh, me? Y- yeah, you. Oh, 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 oh. Okay, sorry. <laughs> Ultimately, it's hard to tell with the with the mannerisms on the show here. Um, I didn't know if you were talking to me or just. Look, bottom line, the housing trade continues. I think we're in, as I've said, a housing bubble. But I think the home builders uh, have have some ways to go. I would not be playing it through the home builders, though. I would be playing it through uh, component parts, and, and I do mean uh, things like HVAC or appliances or materials, because we we've, we've really just begun. And, and I think with rates at these levels, uh, these trades are are going higher. All right. Uh, Guy, you have your hand raised. Yeah, well, no, because I'd just like to respond to Tim in terms of how I would customize my house. And since we're yeah. doing movie quotes, <laughs> uh, I, would, I would install both a pool and a pond, and the pond would be excellent for Tim. Yes, Is thank that you. a quote from a movie? Or is it just random? It is, Okay, actually. I'll take your <laughs> yes, word for no, it. Uh, up, next, exactly. up next is Carvana bring Nirvana to Wall Street. We'll break down why investors are driving into this car company. Plus, time to go apple picking. One often traders betting this tech stock has more juice left at its rally. We've got that trade ahead. More Fast Money right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. Check out shares of Carvana topping the tape today after a pair of analyst upgrades at Goldman Sachs and J.P. Morgan. Goldman says the stock is overcorrected and it will benefit from, quote, long, a long runway for growth in auto sales. J.P. Morgan says Carvana has hit a multi-year head start in online-only car space. Carvana driving higher by more than 30 percent in today's session. Guy, you have been on this one. It's almost as if, Melissa Lee, that the, the community of analysts, specifically at J.P. Morgan and the Goldman Sachs, 
watch the fast money from time to time, which I'm sure is true. And we've collectively talked about this as the way to play the auto sector, you know, where Ford and GM are, are nowhere. You look at names like CarMax and Carvana, which we've talked about now for months, have been exploding. The only thing that gives me pause today, and the only thing is the fact that it traded 10 times normal volume and it sort of stalled at the levels we saw at the beginning of the month. Other than that, uh, this has just been a monster stock, and I think it probably continues to grind higher. The argument has always been that Carvana has, you know, had that head start, as the analysts had said. But, you know, there are other, there are other auto dealer stocks that have a, an online sort of offering. Dan, AutoNation is one. Yeah, you know, this one really caught me by surprise. The, the 30% move in one day on a couple of broker upgrades for a company that is obviously doing a great job. They're growing sales 25, 30% a year and taking some market share. But, you know, you just mentioned AutoNation. I mean, here's a company that's very profitable. They're going to have $20 billion in sales and has less than a $5 billion market cap. Flip it around, and they make a lot of money. Um, flip it around to Carvana, and they're going to maybe do $5.3 billion in sales this year. It has a $36 billion market cap, and they lose money uh, basically on every car that they sell. So to me, that's a massive disconnect. And I think if you love Carvana here, then you probably have to like AutoNation, especially if this is a trend for online sales, because I think AutoNation does at least a quarter of their sales online. We should note that Carvana's short interest is about 29%, according to facts that's a part of that 30% is just a squeeze. Um, Bonwin, what do you feel about the space? I mean, consumers do want cars these days. They don't want to take taxis. They, they don't want to be near people. I mean, I, in terms of general trends, I definitely think it makes sense, right? We're talking about essentially a very fragmented market, and you have players that are here that are able to kind of consolidate that and take that online. That definitely plays well into a pre-current and post-pandemic world. So, yes, I do. However, when I'm looking at a company that's trading off of um, enterprise value to sales, five times, four, nine times trailing, I believe, yeah, I, I definitely think you look for, for alternatives. But the, the general theme makes a, a ton of sense, absolutely. I think this is the way you play it versus the traditional card makers. All right, uh, let's take a check on Tesla here. Shares in the after hour session are up nearly 5%. The battery event is now underway. You're taking a look right now. This is the live presentation. Elon Musk is on stage. Uh, as we mentioned, the stock is up on the back of this. We're monitoring this. We'll bring you any big headlines as we have them. Meantime, coming up is a rally cooking shares of Apple. Often traders seem to think so. More on that trade is next. And here's a sneak peek at the Kramer cam. And there's Jim. He's chatting with the CEO of Macy's, Jeff Jeanette what he is doing to get the stock off the discount rack. That is the top of the hour on Mad Money. Stay with us. Welcome back to Fast Money. We're getting news out of Tesla's battery event. Let's get to Phil LeBeau with the headlines. Phil. Hey, Melissa. Elon Musk just outlined that their goal is to cut the cost per kilowatt hour on their battery cells by 50 percent. Now, they have not given a time frame for when they expect that to happen. But just for a point of reference, they currently it's estimated that their cost per kilowatt hour on their cells is about one hundred and ten dollars per kilowatt hour. That would mean bringing it down to fifty five dollars per kilowatt hour. Again, we don't know the time frame, but that is a lofty, lofty goal. And again, that may be one reason why you see shares of Tesla moving higher after hours. Melissa, back to you. Seems like time frame would be kind of key, Phil. It, I mean, it I, is key. But, <laughs> Melissa, this is like watching a science class. I mean, they're yeah. really going deep in the woods in terms of cell production. I'm sure they are. Phil, thanks for covering this for us. Appreciate it. Phil LeBeau. Up next, you got your final trades. 
It's time for the final trade. Let's go around the horn, Tim. Away from home coffee consumption is going back, in fact, outstripping restaurants. Starbucks comps, I think, are going to be low, and I think they're going to exceed them. Dan. Uh, yeah, if you like that Carvana making new highs here, play AutoNation back to 60 bucks. Bonowin. I know energy was last week's darling. Color me a skeptic. I think XLE continues to struggle. Guy Dami. Melms, how is it possible? How is it possible mm-hmm. that you haven't been to your local Blockbuster and rented the Caddyshack, Reese? I mean, I just don't understand. Do they What's have the it problem? on Betamax? Is that, I mean... <laughs> nice. I mean, yeah. it goes, seems to go without saying. You know, it's interesting. The Mets season has mirrored Thor Industries over the last couple of weeks. But like a phoenix, I think Thor into earnings will rise. Uh, oh, THO nice. off the BMO upgrade. Syndergaard reference. Thanks for watching Fast Money. Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. At Capella University. You'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.